Now Badger was so afraid, she didn't know what to do. But isn't it a delicious thing when you can daydream into reality the way you want to feel? You just watch them groundhogs. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. And we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories for you that you can share with the people that you love. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you and to have you tune in as often as you do to bring these stories into your home and into your heart. You know, when I was a kid, my mother used to quote that rhyme from Robert Louis Stevenson. The world is so full of a number of things... I'm sure we should all be as happy as kings. And the world is full of a number of things, isn't it? Miracles, tragedies, natural wonders, man-made wonders, good guys, bad guys, rich folks, poor folks, and stories behind everyone. Every life is different, and every story is different, too. And this hour, we're going to fill you with stories from Doug Elliott, Norman Walker, Ed Stivender, and Laura Sims. It's going to be a terrific hour. We're looking forward to spending it with you. I want to say up front that you can find us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed or Google the Appleseed podcast for something new just about every day on the show. Not only the full hour-long episodes that you've come to enjoy, but also podcast-only extras, tiny little episodes of the Appleseed for when you've only got a few minutes and you want to fill those few minutes with a great story. Now, up first, we've got a story from our friend Doug Elliott. It's from a collection of stories called Groundhogology and Marmotabilia of Whistle Pigs and World Politics. That's a mouthful for the name of a storytelling collection, but it fits what Doug Elliott does. If you've listened to the show before, you've heard some of Doug Elliott's stories in which he finds all kinds of ways to relate the natural world to the experiences that we have as human beings. Doug has traveled all over the Americas to invest plant and animal life and learn about our connection to the natural world, not only as a storyteller, but as an herbalist and a naturalist. And as he explains in this story, people actually have quite a significant connection to animals. We can learn a lot about ourselves from watching groundhogs, for example. Here's Doug Elliott with The Woodchuck as Warrior, here on The Appleseed. My Chippewa Cree friend said we think of the groundhog as an image for a warrior. Why is that, I ask? This shy, chubby vegetarian didn't fit my stereotype of a warrior. He asked, what's a groundhog do when there's danger near? I said, it avoids trouble and it heads for cover as quick as it can. He says, that's a good strategy for any warrior. But if a groundhog is trapped or cornered away from its den, it'll fight like a wildcat. And that statement took me back a number of years to a time when I was up in New Hampshire and I knew a woman who had a feisty border collie dog. This dog was one dedicated groundhog chaser. He lived and breathed this ongoing vendetta against groundhogs. He wasn't big enough or skillful enough to actually catch and kill one, but that only fueled his fury. Sometimes that dog would chase groundhogs all day from morning till night. Well, this was not generally a problem except when the dog was down the road running groundhogs on the property of this one particular neighbor. This guy had a pasture right behind his house, and there were a few groundhogs there. But he didn't mind those groundhogs near as much as he did her rowdy dog barking all day in his yard, and he'd been complaining to her about it. One morning we hear the dog's barks come from the direction of this neighbor. 
The barks were fierce and frantic. There was high drama going on down there in Mr. McGeady's pasture. My friend says, he's down there at McGeady's. I better go get him. She ran off down the road to retrieve her dog. I saw her run down about 50 yards, and then she climbed over the low stone wall that bordered the little pasture where the barking was coming from. She no sooner got over that wall when I hear her let out, Woo! and I see her jump back up on the wall again, and she was waving and calling, and I ran down and looked over that wall, and there was the dog and the groundhog in the middle of that pasture raising a ruckus. They were face to face, three feet apart, standing their ground. The dog was barking furiously. <laughs> And the groundhog's teeth were whirring like a buzzsaw. <laughs> we called the dog. Here, Gypsy, here, Gypsy, here, Gypsy. And for a second, he turned and started to come to us. As soon as that dog turned his back, the groundhog charged. That dog had to whirl around to defend himself. He couldn't afford to turn his back on that groundhog. The only way I could figure to break up the fight was to simply wade in there and drag that dog out of there. But as I walked in to try to grab the dog, the combined threat of this huge, looming human... Plus, the furious dog became too much for that groundhog, so it turned and tried to make a run for it. As soon as that groundhog turned tail, that dog leapt forward and grabbed that groundhog by the hindquarters, and it started to shake it. But the groundhog twisted loose, flipped up into the air, and landed on its feet facing the dog, and there they were, back in their furious face-off. I bailed out of there. These two animals were locked in a deadly confrontation. Neither one could afford to advance. Neither one could afford to retreat. They were stuck. How was I going to get them apart? The only thing I could figure to do, I got down on my hands and knees and crawled up behind the dog. I grabbed the dog by the hind legs and pulled him backwards away from the groundhog. That dog kept up its furious barking. The groundhog held its ground and kept furiously rattling its teeth at the slowly retreating, frantically barking dog. And as soon as they were more than their needed critical distance apart, the groundhog turned tail and disappeared into the bushes. And that was that. We took the dog home. Now, I have some other friends in Pennsylvania, and they also have a groundhog chasing dog. Now, they tell me their dog often gets into the same kind of face-offs, except they live in open farm country. And one of these face-offs might take place out in a hayfield a quarter of a mile away. Well, in their neighborhood, absolutely no one cares if their dog messes with groundhogs. Well, they get tired of going out there to drag the dog back home, and then as soon as they let him go, he's back out there anyway. So when their dog would go out there and get in one of those raucous face-offs with a groundhog, they'd just leave him out there, barking and carrying on. An hour would go by, and two hours would go by, and both animals would become more and more exhausted. Yet neither one, the dog nor the groundhog, dares to attack or retreat. My friends would watch with their binoculars. The two animals flopped down in front of each other, completely exhausted. And you know what they start doing, my friends say? They start grooming. Not each other, but each animal grooms itself in meticulous detail. Groom, 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 groom. Get that hair in order. Lick, 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 lick. Here they are in a desperate, life-threatening deadlock, a deadly confrontation, and they're grooming. Now what is that about, my friends ask. Well, I don't know, I answered. made no sense to me or my friends what this grooming behavior had to do with deadly conflict. Then I ran into an ethologist. An ethologist is a scientist who studies animal behavior. And I said, oh, I got one for you. I kind of keep questions like these in the back of my mind, just waiting for the right person to ask. And so I said, what is happening with this dog and the groundhog? When they're in a confrontation, they start grooming. And I described the scene. Why are they grooming, I asked. He said, oh, yes, we call that displacement. 
<laughs> Don't you love these scientists? It's displacement. That explains everything, right? Well, they need to find the terms. Displacement is something like this. When an animal during a time of stress, frustration, or indecision starts doing something, chooses a set of behaviors that's not relevant to the situation at hand, that's displacement. So in other words, when an animal is in a mortal confrontation about to die in the jaws of some other animal and it starts combing its hair, grooming, that is classic displacement behavior. Well, he said that the example of displacement they often use in their ethology classes involves seagulls on their crowded nesting colonies. The gulls nest on these little uninhabited islands, and each pair of gulls takes a certain territory a couple yards across. The female broods the eggs, and the male maintains the territory, patrolling their imaginary borderlines. Well, sometimes two male gulls on patrol will end up coinciding at their mutual border with the boundary line in between them. Now, neither of them is about to go across the border and invade the other's territory, but they have to maintain their own space. They face off at each other for a while. If neither gull moves off, they do this thing where they bob their heads up and down. The scientists call that head bobbing. And then they lift their wings and go, click, 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 click. And the scientists call that wing lifting. Then they'll groom a little bit. And sometimes when the confrontation gets more serious, what they do is they start pulling up grass in front of them. The two males will be facing each other. They just tear up the grass at their feet. Tear it up, tear it up, tear it up. Pull it up, pull it up. They pull on bushes. Pull, pull, pull. Scientists call that grass pulling. And these are classic displacement behaviors. Grooming, head bobbing, wing lifting, grass pulling. They are behaviors that are not really relevant to the situation at hand, which happens to be a territorial dispute. Well, then I got to read in Robert Ardrey. Now, Robert Ardrey wrote The Territorial Imperative. It was sort of pop anthropology. It came out in the 60s. Now, scientists don't like Robert Ardrey. They think he makes too many unfounded conclusions in their territory. So the scientists have their own repertoire of territorial display behaviors that they engage in when you mention Ardrey's name. They kind of roll their eyes. They raise their eyebrows. Sometimes they get really upset and they shoot off emails or memos. And these actions are all just part of the repertoire of territorial dominance display behaviors characteristics of that somewhat isolated population. Well, the thing is, Ardrey makes a lot of interesting observations. Like he says, the human animal is not that different from all the other critters. Yeah, we all do the same stuff. We have basically the same behaviors. Now, what do we do when we face a tough problem? We scratch our head. Now, how am I going to get out of this one? Mm, I don't know. I'll scratch my head, stroke my beard, bite my nails. Why do we do these things? We're grooming. Just like other animals, it's classic displacement behavior when we get in a tough situation. We do it all the time. Now, if you really want to see human displacement behavior in action, take a group of these human animals, take them out of their territorial security, and put them in a loose aggregation and give them a set of conflicting stimuli where they don't know whether they should be feeding or courting or fighting or mating or retreating, like at a cocktail party or a reception or something like that. You'll see all these behaviors. You'll see the grooming. You'll see feeding activities, symbolic feeding gestures with cigarettes and wine glasses. You'll see this thing that primates do called the open mouth gaping or grimace gesture. Most higher primates, like baboons, for example, when they get in uncomfortably close proximity, they show their teeth. <laughs> yeah, nice party, isn't it? <laughs> we say with a big smile. <laughs> well, that covers the interpersonal sociological dimension. Then I was thinking about how these principles might manifest on the international level. 
Now, during those Cold War years where you had these two huge superpowers, the former Soviet Union and the United States locked in a mortal confrontation. They had enough armaments between them to destroy the world several times over. Neither could afford to advance and attack. Neither could afford to retreat. What could they do? They were stuck. What did they do? They engaged in international displacement behavior. They started tearing up little countries near them, Central America, Afghanistan, sort of like grass pulling, but the implications are a lot more serious. Well, the Cold War is over, thank goodness, but now the three monotheistic desert religions are all trying to come home to roost. And then there was the whole Operation Desert Storm a few years back, and then the war against terrorism. It's a horrible thing, no matter which side you're on, whether you're for or against all those passions and policies that make it happen, it doesn't make any difference, because there's nothing you can do about it when it's happening. All you can do is engage in institutionalized displacement behavior, wave flags and hang yellow ribbons in trees. So whatever it is you want to understand, whether it's international politics or human psychology or sociology, or metaphysics or mythology or just plain old biology. You want to understand these things better? You just watch them groundhogs. Doug Elliott with a story called The Woodchuck as Warrior here on the Appleseed. Doug Elliott is such a wealth of information about the natural world. And we caught him at the National Storytelling Festival one time, and he said, you know, Sam, I've written a song for the Appleseed. And he sang it into my phone. In fact, we're going to try to record it uh, uh, for real and perhaps bring it to an episode of the show. My favorite line in Doug's song is, you can count all the seeds in an apple, but you can't count the apples in a seed. Doug is a storytelling treasure, and we're always happy to bring you a Doug Elliott tale here to the show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back. We're going to be back with a story from Norman Walker, a piece called The Ballad of Ross and Anna. And you're also going to hear from Catherine Taylor, a longtime friend of the show, and uh, Laura Sims and others as well. You won't want to miss a single word. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard The Woodchuck as Warrior, a story told for you by Doug Elliott, the only guy I know who could actually answer the question, how much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? Naturalist and herbalist Doug Elliott turns his observations of the natural world into terrific stories, and he's also a heck of a harmonica player. Up next, we're going to hear a piece from Norman Walker. He's not just a storyteller. He's a self-proclaimed story singer. And this piece called The Ballad of Ross and Anna is about a couple falls in love, builds a cabin on a mountainside. Unfortunately, the granite slab upon which they built is full of rattlesnakes. Here's The Ballad of Ross and Anna by Norman Walker. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. North Carolina, a boy named Ross 
was far too wet They needed a place on a flat level space And a home with a roof and a bed There's fire on the mountain Upon the mountainside Flames sleep disturb my sleep It burns down deep inside What could be the reason The purpose of it for Fade Ross and Anna Upon their cabin floor Ross had 60 acres of rugged mountain ground The slopes were steep, the valley so deep One level's body found A chunk of solid granite And overlooked the hollow A spot was best for a newlywed nest The cabin soon to follow Kinfolk and the neighbors They came to lend a hand Build a new log cabin on that granite rock to stand That cabin had a granite floor with solid flat except A hole in the middle about the size of a fist so a floor drain was a gift There's fire on the mountain, upon the mountainside Flames leap, disturb my sleep, it burns down deep inside What could be the reason, the purpose of it for? Fate of Ross and Anna upon that cabin floor Wedding celebration with fiddle dance and song And a pounding for the bride and groom to help them get along They put the pound provisions on shelves up in the cabin Started a life as a man and a wife, life they would be having First night in the cabin was cool at winter's end Ross gathered logs and tinder there, fireplace to tend Flaming on the embers soon had the cabin warm That granite too would hold the heat comfort from the storm There's fire on the mountain, upon the mountainside Flames leap, disturb my sleep, it burns down deep inside What could be the reason, the purpose of it all? Fate of Ross and Anna upon that cabin floor Ross got up in the darkness in the middle of the night Walked towards the fireplace to rebuild the fire bright A rattling and a hissing and a pain he felt instead As he hit the floor his words implore said, Anna, stay in bed Next morning when some neighbors stopped in to say hello Knew that something very wrong had happened and then so door was locked, they could hear poor Anna still inside They ran the door, snakes covered the floor, place where Ross had died There's fire on the mountain, upon the mountainside Flames sleep, disturb my sleep, the birds down deep inside What could be the reason, the purpose of the fall They of Ross and Anna on that cabin floor Rattlesnakes were everywhere, but Anna's still in bed In shock and grief and terror there, her lover lying dead The neighbors cut a hole in the roof, took Anna up that route From the door they threw a long lasso, pulled Ross's body out That hole in the rock was a passage to a hibernating cavern Fire drew the rattling crew to warmth up in the cabin Thought to move the cabin, but the snakes would not recede So they burned that building to the ground, put closure to the deed There's fire on the mountain, upon the mountainside 
Norman Walker with the Ballad of Ross and Anna. A tragic tune, but a good one. Up next, we've got a story from Ed Stivender. Now, he's going to tell a story called Sodi Saleratus. And you've heard a version of this story, if you've listened to the show, by Donna Washington. In fact, a lot of people know this story. It's kind of a reverse uh, Little Red Riding Hood <laughs> kind of a story, where instead of journeying to Grandmother's house with baked goods, it's a journey from Grandmother's house to pick up some needed baking supplies. And, of course, one by one, each person sent to get some sody saleratus doesn't come back until the only person left is, well, you'll find out. Ed Stivender with his version of sody saleratus, a folktale of which there are many versions. You can find other versions online in our archive at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. In fact, an archive there of all of the episodes of this show, more than a thousand episodes, thousands of stories for your listening pleasure anytime you like. Here's our friend Ed Stivender on the Appleseed. Do you guys like chocolate chip cookies? Did I ever tell you the story about how Grandma and Grandpa and Billy and Mary decided to have some chocolate chip cookies, that squirrel that lives around their house? Well, Grandma went into the kitchen. She took the flour. She took the sugar. She took the chocolate chips. She went to get the sodi saleratus, which is a fancy name for baking soda and salt. But there wasn't any sodi saleratus left. And so Grandma said to Billy, Billy, why don't you run down to Mr. Peeper's store and get some sodi saleratus? So Billy, being the obedient boy he was, went down that road, and he was singing the Sody Saleratus song, something like this. Sody, Sody, Sody Saleratus. Want to try that with Billy? Sody, Sody, Sody Saleratus. Hi, Mr. Peepers, you got any Sody Saleratus? Why, sure do, Billy. Here you go, son. Take this right back home to your grandma, and don't dawdle along the road. Thanks, Mr. Peepers, said Billy. Took the Sody Saleratus and headed back home singing. You ready? Sody, sody, sody saleratus. When all of a sudden from around a tree came a big old bear. Huh, I'm going to eat you up, you and your sody saleratus. The bear grabbed Billy, swallowed him down in one gulp. <clears throat> Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Grandma and Grandpa and Mary and that little squirrel that hangs around their house were wondering what was going on. So Grandma said to Mary, Mary, well, don't you run down to Mr. Peeper's store and see what happened to your brother. So Mary, being the obedient girl that she was, went down that road, and she was singing that same song. You ready? Sody, sody, sody saleratus. Hi, Mr. Peepers. You see my brother Billy? Well, as a matter of fact, Mary, he was here about 15 minutes ago. He's gone now. He's probably dawdling down the road somewhere. Thanks, Mr. Peepers, said Mary. Started back down the road singing. Sody, sody, sody saleratus. When all of a sudden from around a tree came the big old bear, ha, ha. I just ate a little boy, him and his sody saleratus, and I'm going to eat you up. Bear grabbed Mary, swallowed her down in one gulp. Ooh. 
Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Grandma and Grandpa and that little squirrel that hangs around their house were wondering what was going on. And so Grandma said to Grandpa, Grandpa, why don't you run down to Mr. Peeper's store and see what happened to them youngins? So Grandpa, being the obedient husband that he was, went down that road, and he was singing that same song. Saudi, Saudi, Saudi Salaritas. Mr. Peepers, you seen them youngins? Well, as a matter of fact, Grandpa, they were both here in the last half hour. They're gone now, probably dawdling down the road somewhere. Thanks, Mr. Peepers, said Grandpa, started back down the road singing. Saudi, Saudi, Saudi Salaritas. When all of a sudden from around a tree came that big old bear. Huh. I'd just say, little boy, I'm in the soda salad. I'd say, little girl, now I'm going to eat you up. Bear grabbed Grandpa, swallowed him down to one gulp. <clears throat> Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Grandma, that little squirrel, was hanging out. They were wondering what was going on. And Grandma said, if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. So Grandma went down that road, and she was singing that same song. Are you ready? Sody, 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 salary, this sody, 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 salary, this Mr. Peeps, you send them youngins and my husband. Well, as a matter of fact, Grandma, they were all here in the last 45 minutes, but they're gone now, probably dawdling down the road somewhere. Thanks, Mr. Peeper, said Grandma, started back down the road singing. Sody, 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 salary, this sody, 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 salary. When all of a sudden from around the tree came that big old bear, huh? I just ate a little boy, him and his soda side reds. I'd say the little girl, I'd say the stringy old grandpa, now I'm going to eat you up. Bear grabbed grandma, swallowed her down in one gulp. <clears throat> Meanwhile, back at the ranch, who's left? The squirrel has no idea what's going on, so he figures he better get down that road, find out for himself. So he does, singing that same song in squirrel talk, something like this. Want to try that? Comes into Mr. Peeper's store, jumps up Mr. Peeper's sideboard and says, Well, as a matter of fact, they were all here in the last hour or so, but they're gone now, probably dawdling down the road somewhere, said the squirrel. Starts back down the road singing. When all of a sudden from around the tree came that big old bear. I'd just say to the little boy, him and his soda salad reds, I'd say to the little girl, I'd say to the stringy old grandpa, I'd say to the sweet old grandma. Now for dessert, I'm going to eat you up. Went to grab the squirrel, but the squirrel was too fast for him, and he ran away. He clumb a tree. The bear looked up and said, your little feet will get you that high. My big feet will get me higher. So the bear started up the tree after the squirrel, and they both clumb higher and higher and higher. Pretty soon they were at the top of the tree, and the tree was beginning to sway back and forth. And back and forth. The bear reached up to get the squirrel. The squirrel jumped to another tree. The bear lost his footing and fell down and down and down and whomp on the ground. Out of his mouth popped Grandma and Grandpa and Billy and Mary and the Sody Salaratus. And they all ran home and they were all singing. Sody, Sody, Sody Salaratus. Grandma went to the kitchen. She went, she got the flour, she got the sugar, she got the chocolate chips, she got the Sody Salaratus. She made 144 chocolate chip cookies that day. You think that's gross? Well, that squirrel took six whole cookies back down the road to the bear because, as you could imagine, the bear wasn't feeling too well that day and the squirrel wanted to kind of cheer him up. And that's the story of Sody Salaratus. Thank you. Ed
Ed Stivender telling stories before an enthusiastic young audience. I always think it's almost as fun to hear the audience reacting to Ed's story as it is to hear the story itself. Sodi Saleratus, the name of that story, told by the great storyteller Ed Stivender, who has been telling stories on stage all over the country, all over the world for decades and decades, ever since he left the high school classroom in 1977 to be a professional storyteller. Such a pleasure to have you listen with us to that story, and there is a lot more coming up. We're going to hear next from Laura Sims, an animal story from a collection of animal stories from the world over. You're going to love the tale. It's called Animal Tales, and it's coming up in just a moment. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard from our friend Ed Stivender with a story called Sodi Saleratus. Sodi Saleratus, of course, another name for baking soda and salt. And that story told for an enthusiastic young audience. Such a pleasure to hear them react to a great storyteller. And before that, you heard a story, a song, really, called The Ballad of Ross and Anna. A tragic tale, but a good one from Norman Walker. And up next, you're going to hear a story from Laura Sims. Now, this is a story from a collection of stories from all over the world, all about animals. And have you ever wondered how animals got their tails? That's what this story is about. They didn't used to all have them, according to this tale. If you pay attention, you'll see that some animals have long tails, others have short tails, some fluffy, some sleek. Laura Sims has the explanation in this story. Animal Tales by Laura Sims, here on The Appleseed. Long, 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 long ago, in Bayalorus, the only animal that had a tail was lion. All the other animals suffered in the summer. The flies were driving them crazy. Lion took pity on the animals and decided, since he was the king of all the beasts, to give them each a present of the tail of their choice. Lion sent out his messengers far and wide to gather all the animals. Goat, wolf, bull, badger, elk, horse, hare, marten, fox, pig, everyone rushed to the lion's house. Everyone but Bear. Bear strolled along slowly, a single step at a time. Bears don't like to hurry. Suddenly, Bear smelled honey. Mmm, it's a long journey to the lion's house. I shall get something to eat. It'll just take a minute. Bear climbed up in the tree, put his paw right in the beehive, mm, had some luscious honey, and then thought, Now I'm so sticky, I'll just go down to the river and wash myself. I could never go to lion looking like this. When he got to the river and washed himself, Bear sat down in the sun to dry. The sun was so warm and so comfortable that Bear fell asleep. 
Meanwhile, all the animals gathered in front of Lion's house. There was a huge pile of magnificent tails of every shape, every color, every size. Fox bowed to Lion, raced right up, and said, "I was the first to arrive, and I choose that most beautiful, long, bushy, and elegant tail." Lion really didn't care which tail they chose, and Lion said. Whatever you please, and Fox took the beautiful tail, stuck it on where tails go, and romped off, pleased with herself. Next came Squirrel. Squirrel chose a beautiful tail, but a bit smaller. Elk chose the longest tail with a thick brush at the end. Horse sauntered up and chose a long, hairy, flowing tail that he could sweep from the left to the right. Horse whinnied with pleasure. One after another, all of the animals chose their tails, and finally, little hare came hopping up. The lion said, "Where have you been?" I was really busy. All there was was a little teeny tail. But Hare said, "That's all right. I'm just little." And Hare took it, stuck it on, and that was the end of all the tales. Lion went to sleep. It was about that time that Bear <gasps> awoke, and he remembered that he had been hurrying to the lion's house for a tale. He lumbered, sauntered, pulled his big body on all fours as quickly as he could, and finally came to the lion's house. Lion was asleep, and there were no tails left at all. Bear was furious. He turned and left, and not far from lion's house, Badger was twisting. Turning and scratching her new tail on a tree stump, admiring herself. Badger, that's too big a tail for you. Give it to me," said Bear. "Oh no," said Badger. "Who would want to part with such a beautiful tail? I have never looked as gorgeous. If you don't give me that tail of your own free will, I'll take it away." Bear roared, and Bear. Pulled on Badger's tail. Ouch! Said Badger, and wrenched herself away and ran as quickly as she could. Bear looked, and in his claws was a piece of Badger's coat and the very tip of her tail. Bear threw the coat away, took the little piece, stuck it right on his back, and went off to finish the honey in the tree hollow. Now Badger was so afraid. She didn't know what to do. No matter where she ran, no matter where she hid, she was always thinking that Bear was right behind her. Finally, she dug a hole in the earth and went right in. After a while, the place on her back where Bear had taken the skin it healed, but there's always been a dark spot there, and she has a lovely tail, but not so big as the one she got from Lion. But at least she was safe. And then one day, Fox, who was walking, saw the hole, jumped in it. Badger said, "What are you doing in here?" And Fox said, "What are you doing in here?" 
And when Badger explained how Bear had stolen part of her tail, Fox, who was certain she had the most beautiful tail, grew frightened. Fox rushed off as quickly as she could, and she dug a hole somewhere else, got right in, wrapped her tail around her, and that's where she lives. In fact, you'll notice that to this day, Badger and Fox both live in holes in the earth. They're always watching out for Bear. But Bear, Bear is watching out for Honey with his little stubby tail. Animal Tales, a story shared for you by Laura Sims. Laura is the artistic director of the Hans Christian Andersen Storytelling Center in New York City, a humanitarian writer and educator and uh, a storyteller of the first order. We've seen her live on stage. We've enjoyed her recordings, and we hope you enjoyed that telling of Animal Tales. Again, as we mentioned before the story, it's part of a collection of animal stories from all over the world uh, that Laura tells and shares with audiences of all kinds. And coming up now, we've got a story from Catherine Taylor. Now, Catherine has a Ph.D. in the history of art from the University of Manchester, and her studies center on images of women in early Christian contexts, mostly. And here, she talks about what led her to such a discipline and the meaning she derives from the art that she studies. And one of the things you'll notice about this story is that, like it is for so many of us, the things that Catherine has come to love as a grown-up have their roots in things that she loved as a child. She'll describe herself as a girl who loved to daydream, and those dreams let her participate in new worlds. And now she explores firsthand worlds of which others only dream. This is a story we call A Little Princess, Catherine Taylor, here on The Appleseed. If there were a characteristic that I have distinctly carried over from my childhood right into my adult life, it would be a tendency to slip into an imaginary world of my own making. Don't get me wrong, I adult in the real world for far too many hours in the day. But isn't it a delicious thing when you can daydream into reality the way you want to feel and to set to light the visions of your heart? Mystics and visionaries have always inhabited the space of the inspired imagination, and even those of us who only fancy ourselves as such can easily agree with thinkers like Albert Einstein, who said that the imagination encircles the world. It will get you everywhere. I believed that as a child, and I still believe it. I was a girl who pictured every detail of the read-aloud books in school and those that I devoured on my own at night under my covers in my small basement room. My room was sparse and cool and next to the noisy old furnace, but I didn't have to share it with anyone. It was my sanctuary. As the eldest child of six and the only girl in my family, you would be right to think that I regularly escaped into books and imagined myself onto the pages that I loved so well. One of my favorite books was A Little Princess by Frances Hodgson Burnett, and I often fell asleep to the dream of waking 
just like Sarah Crewe in her attic garret room to find warm slippers and crimson silk robes. Burnett described this particular kind of wonder so well in one of Sarah and Becky's magic moments. She writes, Imagine, if you can, what the rest of the evening was like, how they crouched by the fire which blazed and leaped and made so much of itself in the little grate, how they removed the covers of the dishes and found rich, hot, savory soup, which was a meal in itself, and sandwiches and toast and muffins enough for both of them, They were warm and full-fed and happy, and it was just like Sarah that, having found her strange good fortune real, she should give herself up to the enjoyment of it to the utmost. She had lived such a life of imaginings that she was quite equal to accepting any wonderful thing that happened and almost to cease in a short time to find it bewildering. My imagination was also my way into these expansive worlds— In 1985, I found myself as a sixth-grade student at Joaquin Elementary School in Provo, Utah. These were the days when, if you wanted to participate in the enchantment of knowing facts or educating yourself on a topic, you went to the school or public library or to the encyclopedia set that your family acquired volume by volume. I have to say that living in a university town provided multiple venues for the rich, deep, and accessible cultural exposure that I longed for, that I had a natural affinity for. In fact, like Sarah Crewe, I unexpectedly found myself in a position where I would not have to just imagine the wonders of a world I had only read about. I was about to be drawn up into the ancient world in a way that to me felt like real magic. In October of 1985, Brigham Young University opened the first official exhibit of Ramses II, featuring artifacts from Egypt. There was a concerted effort by the public relations and advertising folks at BYU to involve student teachers in preparing young people to visit the exhibit. There were packets and a traveling program where education students would go into the local schools and contextualize for students what they would be seeing on their field trip to visit Ramses. The student teacher who came to visit Mrs. Knight's sixth grade classroom was from the Deep South. She wore a stylish pantsuit and she brought with her posters and charts and maps and pictures of the Egyptian pantheon. You know, all of the anamorphic gods and goddesses lined up in their characteristic walk-like-an-Egyptian poses. Of course we had all seen Yule Brenner play Ramses in Cecil B. DeMille's annual must-watch-TV showing of The Ten Commandments, but this was taking things to a whole new level. I will never forget how, in her southern accent, she explained the story of Osiris, the green-skinned god, wrapped like a mummy with the funny beard and bowling pin hat. You see, Osiris was killed by his brother and usurper Set, who drowned and later dismembered his brother. Isis, the wife-sister of Osiris, gathered his body and wrapped it in burial linens in preparation for resurrection. She does indeed bring him back to life for a short time. And because of this, Osiris is known as the god of the afterlife, the underworld, regeneration and rebirth. I was equally fascinated by the power and symbolism in the narrative and the images for both Osiris and Isis. 
I think because of the Egyptian connections to death and the practice of caring for the dead, these things resonated with me. It captured my imagination in ways that I only now recognize as transformational to my current vocation. I can't explain how I intuitively knew that this experience was one that would alter the course of my life. But even at 12 years old, I anticipated the exhibit with an attitude that I can only equate with reverence. Temporary pylons and an exhibit hall were constructed next to the Montiel Bean Museum, and I remember walking across campus, feeling like I was traveling through time and space into a world where objects and images and art held the most important secrets. They were in a symbolic language. That I desperately wanted to decipher. Only much later in life did I recognize that the nascence of my affinity for ancient art, artifacts, and the workings of the world of the dead was born of this experience. I am an art historian. I study the memorial remnants of the lives of early Christians in catacomb paintings and sarcophagi, and other paraphernalia of death. How the earliest Christians imagined the underworld and provided its material ephemera fascinates me. It is magic to me. The very mystery of my enchantment played out one day in the autumn of 2009. I was in Rome investigating the earliest images of the Annunciation, the moment when the angel Gabriel announces to Mary that she is to become the mother of Jesus. As a freshly minted PhD student, I was new to fieldwork. I scheduled a tour of the Priscilla Catacombs out on the Via Salaria, the old road leading north out of the city. I toured the second-century catacomb with its Greek chapel, depicting women at banquet and prayer scenes. I marveled at the narrative of Susanna and the elders, and I witnessed probably the earliest image of the Virgin and Child. Although I was captivated by these many ghosts, I was there to see one specific image, and to my naive chagrin, it was not on the tour. I made my way back to the gift shop, where I tried in my best Italian to plead my case for special access to Cubiculum P, the room with the Annunciation on the ceiling. After being told that this was a highly irregular request, I was asked to stand in the corner of the room. While they consulted with some of the ranking nuns about this possibility, I remember thinking that this must be what it was like to be the scolded schoolgirl in the corner. I was also overwhelmingly determined to find myself face to face with the Virgin enthroned, to see if there were, in fact, some details in the painting that were so crucial to my PhD argument. I figured that the best thing to do in this circumstance would be to pray, not for myself, but that these holy women would recognize my venerable cause and grant me access as an art historical pilgrim. My own miracle did happen that day. There was a sister who was just about to go to that part of the catacomb to recover the altar cloth, paten, and chalice used earlier to celebrate the mass. She agreed to escort me, and my impossible request was granted. It is a rare thing to spend forty glorious minutes in the underworld, under the Ark of Heaven, with Mary seated like the great Mother Goddesses before her. 
God works in mysterious ways, and this, to me, was hard evidence of one of those ways. Although careful scholarship and close readings of text and image are combined in my work, I still allow for a little meander, a little imaginative wander, in order to symbolically raise the dead, to try to understand the lives of the past, their devotion, and their holy practices. My vocation compels me to come and play, to think carefully, and to reveal and restore long-forgotten knowledge and wisdom kept by earliest Christian women in life and in death. While my imagination has evolved from wishing on the magic of a little princess to writing about the iconography of death and memorial, it still contains the same liveliness, the same electric excitement that were so marked for me as a child— and that have become for me, just as for Sarah Crewe, full of familiar wonder. A pleasure to hear a story from our friend Catherine Taylor. We invited Catherine to think about a story from her life, to write it down, and come and tell it in front of the Appleseed microphones. It's the kind of thing that we hope is going on. As you listen to the stories here on the Appleseed, that they spark memories for you that you can think about and render and tell for the people that you love. We've got just a moment left, and we want to fill it with an entry in the Radio Family Journal. You know, you never know what's going to spark a memory, and as we listen to the story Sodi Saleratus by Ed Stivender, this story of heading uh, from one place to another after baking supplies. It reminded me of going to the store with my folks. And, of course, that led to going to the store on my own when I had money of my own and a way to get to the store on my own. And that has made for a memory I'd like to share. Here's an entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. There are a lot of little steps toward independence. When I was a little kid and had neither change in my pocket nor a bicycle, if I wanted a candy bar, I had to rely on the good graces of my mom or dad who might take me along to the store with them and reward me with a treat if I didn't make the trip miserable. And then there came a day when I began to get an allowance, 50 cents per week. At first, all in nickels with a requirement that I save a nickel of it. My parents were trying to teach me something. So really, 45 cents, nine nickels. It was a step toward independence. Now, when I went to the store with my mom or dad, I could choose a treat independent of whether or not I had behaved. I had decisions to make, too. I could blow 45 cents on a candy bar and a frosty root beer, or I could buy one now and one a couple of days from now. The possibilities that came with independence were endless. But not as endless as the possibilities were after I had not only an allowance, but an allowance and a bike. My first bike was a yellow Royce Union with coaster brakes and a banana seat. And now I didn't even have to wait until my folks were going to the store. I could go my own dang self and buy my own dang treat with my own dang money. More independence meant more possibilities, and it also meant more decisions. 
By the time that both my brother Joe and I had bikes, we would often hit the road together in a quest for penny candy and a soda. We had a couple of places to choose from in town. We could head down our country road to what was then Burgess Market to get our loot, the little grocery store on the west side of the city park. Or we could ride about a block and a half farther south toward the edge of town to Super Saver. Super Saver was the only gas station in town, and back then, it sat at what in our minds was the edge of civilization. Super Saver represented a further leap toward the unknown. A ride to Super Saver was a greater assertion of the independence that came with having a pocket full of change and a bicycle. It was also more dangerous. Both Burgess Market and Super Saver sat right on Main Street, but to get to Burgess Market, you just traveled down our country road. You didn't have to ride on Main Street. You just had to go to it. But to get to Super Saver, you had to ride for hundreds of yards on Main Street itself, cars whizzing by. Using one's independence to choose to go to Super Saver meant taking greater care, exercising more diligence. We mastered it and came home with our pockets full of Super Saver candy as often as we came home with Burgess Market candy in our pockets. Well, Joe and I slowly got older. Our little bicycling legs grew stronger. I swapped out the yellow Royce Union for a red 10-speed from Coast to Coast Hardware. My brother and I started getting little jobs, watering the neighbor's horses for a buck a week. And as our 45 cents in nickels came to be joined in our little pockets by actual paper money, and as our transportation became more refined, we set our sights on targets that were farther off. We wanted the candy not at Burgess Market, an easy ride down our country road, nor at Super Saver, a block and a half farther down Main Street. But we wanted the candy at Country Corner, the convenience store spelled with two Ks, a full mile and a half farther south on a then desolate road called Alpine Highway. Country Corner was in a whole different town. Cars sped by with abandon. But we had the bikes, we had the money, we had the independence. We wanted to take the ride. And late one afternoon, the whole family was on a walk. We had walked all together from our house down to Burgess Market for a gallon of milk or something to go with cookies my mom was going to make. My mom, my dad, me, my brother Joe, our little brothers Dave and Josh, and Eliza, our baby sister. It was a walk, but Joe and I had our bikes with us. We loved our bikes like you loved yours, and so of course we had them with us. It was late in the afternoon when we left the store to head back home. But Joe and I caught each other looking down the road, the road that led out of town, the road that led to Country Corner. And almost in unison, we asked our folks if we could please, please ride there, if we were careful, careful, careful. Well, incredibly, our folks said that we could go. So the rest of the family headed off toward home, and Joe and I mounted up and headed south along Alpine Highway. We passed Super Saver. We kept going. We rounded the low hill that served as the de facto edge of town. The sun dipped behind the mountains to the west. Dusk. 
The cars driving back and forth on Alpine Highway clicked on their headlights. They were moving at Alpine Highway speeds faster than Main Street speeds and a lot faster than country road speeds. The wind began to pick up, exacerbated by the air that whipped by us as cars passed. Well, I don't know if it makes this a worse story or a better one to say that we didn't make it to Country Corner that night. As the light grew dimmer and the headlights brighter and the cars faster and the wind noisier, Joe and I stopped our bikes together and decided together to turn back. We caught up with my mom and our little brothers and our baby sister and our dad, and we offered to carry the milk even as we walked our bikes along. There would be other rides. We'd go farther than Country Corner, much farther, but not that night. That night, the necessary decisions that came with the possibilities that came with our independence led us safely home with our family. Home and free to explore the possibilities that came with our ever-growing independence on another day. And that night, the milk and cookies we enjoyed before bed were sweeter by far than the candy we dreamed of buying at Country Corner. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal and for joining us this hour for stories from Norman Walker, from Ed Stivender, Laura Sims, Catherine Taylor, and the Woodchuck as Warrior from Doug Elliott. Always a pleasure to share these stories with you. This hour was written by Trent Horton, our audio engineer Stuart Foster, our producer Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne, and we'll see you next time on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.